we dedicate our time together this morning to all those who are suffering. May we remember that our suffering and our well-being are shared. We acknowledge the Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples on whose traditional, ancestral, and contemporary lands Clouds and Water is an uninvited guest. For those of us who are not indigenous to these lands, may we commit to curiosity and engagement with the lives, justice movements, and sovereignty of the native nations of this territory and beyond. We offer deep gratitude to our Indian, Chinese, and Japanese spiritual ancestors and contemporaries for all they have given us and for the chance to be here today. May we practice cultural humility. We recognize the black community and the destruction of the historic Rondo neighborhood in which we practice. May we stand side by side in community care. We are all connected. May we work together for the liberation of all beings. Good morning. I woke up at 7.30 and I thought, I have plenty of time. Um, And uh, last night, I I took a shower before bed last night and I usually have this kind of regimen post-shower of like just shea butter from the neck up. (laughs) Um, And I didn't do it last night, so I had to to deal with that this morning. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> I get I get very uh, you don't need to know this <laughs> it, gets, it gets dry um, so uh, I was I was experimenting with different um, hydrating tonics on my face and head this morning and then I uh, I uh, downed a double espresso and then I ate a bagel in my car um and now I have like a little headache and I'm like this is not this is not useful you know yeah if I, if you're ever about to eat a bagel in your car just be like wow I need to stop living like this <laughs> and it was sesame seeds so they're all over <laughs> but you got to do what you got to do sometimes so I, I ran in and I'm like, oh, it's compassion practice. I should got to print out the names. So I um, printed out the names. And as soon as um, I g- came out of the copy room with the names, Gyokujun, the Ino Sami, and it's like, I already have those. They're on your seat. And I'm like, I've been doing all this for nothing. Anyway, my fault. So um, I have a couple of things that I've been thinking about lately. But um, I'm curious what's going on with all of you and what's going on in the room. Um, So if you have any uh, thoughts, I do best with questions about Buddhism and the yogic traditions and um, electronic music from 1978 (laughs) to 1993. So uh, if any if anything's on anyone's mind, and we'll sit here for uh, uh, there's there's this person that Minna takes classes with called Sophie Macklin, and she said you got to wait three minutes because the person that doesn't want to talk it takes them three minutes to, <laughs> to 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 speak up. So we'll sit here, and if anyone has anything on their mind, we could do that, and then I'll um, and if not, then uh, I'll tell you what's on my mind. 
there's a clock behind you if you want to time this. That's time. probably a good idea. <laughs> I, I don't know what a minute is. Every time I think I know, I'm way off. Yeah. I've been reading Sheraton Salzburg's book on loving kindness. Mm -hmm. There's a, a section where she talks about she went to her teacher and her teacher said, if if you were with um, yourself, oh, your benefactor, the neutral person, your enemy, and someone came and wanted to harm all of you, what would you who or take one of you, who would you offer to go forward? <laughs> and um, she thought about it and she said, I couldn't offer anyone. And my first thought when I read that was, well, if I were doing loving kindness, I think I would want to offer myself. But when she went on to explain about how the teacher said, when you have loving kindness for yourself, as much as everyone else, that there's really no one to offer the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So maybe I uh, have the feeling of in doing that practice, stepping outside of yourself and sort of looking at yourself almost like you look at everyone else, like sort of a watcher. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that. Mm -hmm. Well, I had this I had this experience recently that made me think about, you know, sometimes when we encounter um, when we encounter certain teachings, I think one way that we have to kind of test the metal of them is being uh, what um, the person that's sharing it with me, what's their situation and how would how could they use this teaching to their advantage? And they're sharing it with me, you know. So who does this? What? Who? Who does this specific narrative benefit? You know. So, um, um, for example, um, when I was living at a residential temple, read the 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 prana, the the life force of the residential temple is free labor. <laughs> you know. Um, and the free labor is coaxed out of people um, through uh, language around um, self-sacrifice, you know, language around um, relinquishing self-interest, letting go of the ego, uh, moving through resistance, all these things that sound like really great spiritual ideas, right? And they're used to uh, subjugate uh, students. Um, so when we enter, when we encounter a teaching about letting go of the ego, we have to be a little bit thoughtful about who it's coming from and how and how it can be used in ways that serve them rather than us, yeah, um, or instead of in, serve them instead of us, yeah. not including us. Um, but I think there is a applicable helpful version of selflessness. And um, I had this experience uh, the other day. I hope they're okay with me sharing it with you, but I had this interaction with Minna where I was not selfless. <laughs> and um, 
I told I told uh, Yokai about it the other day, but um, uh, I was I had a bunch of I was coming here from the house and I had a bunch of stuff on me. I had like a bag with a laptop in it and then some papers. Then I had like something else in my hands, and we uh, had just been kind of cleaning out our basement, and we have our cars full of stuff that's supposed to go to like either Goodwill or Buffalo Exchange. I I need to figure out which. Um, and uh, uh, and then I was kind of going out the door. Minutes like, could you put these in the car in the Goodwill pile? And Minutes, my who works here, Minutes, my partner that I live with, um, another priest, and. Uh, and I'm like, um, well, since we're not going to the Goodwill today, can we put it in the car another day? Because my hands are free, you know. And uh, and then Minna looks had just a flash of disappointment on their face, and and started a new sentence, which is, "It's just that." And as soon as I heard, "It's just that," I'm just like, "How many hands do I have?" You know, with like anger, you know. Uh, they didn't even get to like finish their their sentence right so with this like spite you know like what it, you know because as soon as it was it's just that i felt like the proposition was like you need to you need to figure out how to do this thing you just said you can't do you know and that pissed me off um so uh they looked kind of surprised and crestfallen you know, and then I like got in the car. I grabbed the things anyway. <laughs> Continuing with the spite, I did it anyway. You know, um, and then I get in the car and I spend the whole drive from there to here reflecting on uh, hurting someone's feelings. You know, and I do this. I do this whole dance when I hurt someone's feelings, which is just like, no, I need to have bound. You know, and I'm like, and I'm I'm like talking myself through it. Initially, I'm kind of bolstering myself. You know, you can't please everyone all the time. They weren't honoring Manel, blah, 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 you know. And then I'm kind of like, if I was going to refine what the feeling was, what would I have to say about it? You know, what, what, was, what, was the, what was the narrative that was underlying that? How many hands do I have? You know, it, I'm making it sound a little bit meaner than I actually am. But, um, um, but it was definitely my... I, I could hear all of my Italian uncles. With the, How many hands do I have? You know, um, and uh, I'm like, well, I felt like I felt that that thing that I just described. Like, I, I felt like I was being told that the thing I just said I couldn't do, I needed to figure out how to do, and that's a frustrating feeling. You know, and I'm like. That would have been an excellent thing to say instead of how many hands do I have? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I had the bandwidth, if I had the, the precondition of ease within myself and the non-self-protection and the not worrying about feeling, you know, like I was assessed or being forced into something or bullied into something. And the precondition of being of feeling like I was being bullied into something has nothing to do with that exchange. It has everything to do with the perfuming that's been happening in my consciousness since the beginning of this time. You know, that makes me that shaken soda can, you know. Um, so, um, so I got but here, just from the time it took to drive from there to here, there were no apologies or anything before I left the house, you know. And then I got here and I'm like, hey, I felt like, um, 
like I was being asked to do something I just said I couldn't do. And that was a really frustrating feeling for me. And I'm really sorry I didn't communicate just that to you very plainly um, with, without that spiteful edge to it and, and, and demonstrating to you the respect that I have for you, you know? And that is a, is a type of selflessness that is not self-sacrificing. If anything, it's um, bringing more of yourself more accurately into an interaction which creates harmony you know um i mean you could encounter people in your life that are mad at you for saying how you felt that's not that's not impossible um but you're keeping up your end of the deal more so with the it felt like this to me and that's why I felt, and you know, and that's a frustrating feeling for me, you know, and I could disappoint people, but it's not, I'm not, I'm not introducing um, this like gnarly edge unnecessarily. So, so to have the bandwidth to, to do that. Um, now, what the hell does that have to do with what you asked me? Um, I hear a lot of murmuring <laughs> answering that. I can't hear you. Do you, do you want to tell me? <laughs> I heard someone say about that's related to self-sacrifice. Yeah, there's this idea of kind of like, um, I think there's smart. And, so I might not be answering your question, but I'm answering what your question made me think about. Yeah. But I'm thinking about uh, kind of uh, educated and uneducated or wholesome and unwholesome, like, like just like ho honing in, not educated and uneducated, but like, but like um, getting uh, a little bit more precise about what we think that invitation into egolessness is. And it's not just like throwing ourselves in front of every tank, you know, but it's kind of like, how am I going to express um, boundaries or what needs to happen or express my feelings without it having this extra thing of this um, of there's definitely a one here that needs to be protected, you know, rather than, you know, you're totally protecting this one by inviting, by imagining and creating a circle of community care, which you are part of. Does that make sense? I don't know if now in terms of like, who would I sacrifice? I don't know. I guess that's a fun game. I would have thought myself too, you know, but maybe that's kind of like indicative of um, uh, some missing self-esteem uh, self or a hero complex or something like that. I don't know. I might, I might throw the person I didn't like in harm's way. <laughs> who knows what I would do? You know, but hypotheticals. Why I got in a big fight in my when I I went to college for four months, and um, <laughs> we got in this fight. Uh, I mean, I I think I got the message. I got the point after four months. But um, but uh, there was this exercise about ethics about like, all right, you're in a cave and the cave is filling up with the water and there's a hole and someone's stuck in the hole and you could either dynamite them out of the hole and kill them so that the rest of you can get out or that you leave that person stuck in the hole and everybody dies and i was like blow that person up you know and all the other buddhists because it was a buddhist university they're all very upset with me um, and i was like i hope i'm never stuck in a cave with you people <laughs> uh. <laughs> so 
<laughs> How's that? <laughs> I wish I had more for you. Any follow-up thoughts? Well, the second part of that question was, I could do that if I stepped outside of myself and just sort of sought myself like one of those categories. Mm -hmm. You know, give loving kindness to yourself. Oh, if you give it to someone near and dear, you give it to a benefactor, a neutral person, um, an enemy. And if I could sort of step outside of myself, but then I feel like I'm separating from um, Yeah. Like I'm creating separation throughout it and creating a sense of connected. Yeah. Well, I think that that I mean, there's a there's a line between the skillful um, disidentification with 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 self as usual, you know, and uh, and identification with this like grander community, you know, um, and I think you know that specific when you're getting into the details, the tech the the technical instruction. So if any of you have done a guided meditation on the what they call the four measurables or the Brahma Viharas. It's like um, um, they there's a guided meditation on cultivating compassion, guided meditation on cultivating uh, friendliness, or what they often call in English loving kindness, which is metta, which really means friendliness. Um, and the idea is that uh, there's a script for it, sudden a script for it, where you think of something you love and then you start kind of demoting people to see if you can still engender that feeling of love or that feeling of friendliness towards all kinds of beings including those you don't like that specific description of how to do that practice is a much later addition early buddhist metta practice is actually just cultivating the feeling of metta and you're not doing this first your puppy then you're you know, annoying uncle, and then yourself, you know, it's like, that's kind of a thing that I think was maybe from, gosh, maybe like 500 AD or something like that um, in Sri Lanka. So if that doesn't work for you, um, not that things are less authentic if they're later, but like, if that doesn't work for you, you don't have to. I mean, that wasn't necessarily Buddha's instruction. You're still doing Buddha's instruction if you're just cultivating metta and not, and not running through that kind of script of all those different kinds of people. If that makes sense. Um, I feel like there's something I'm missing um, in terms of separation from others. I don't, I don't know. I feel like your needs are still not met. Um, I guess I'd agree. <laughs> um, Maybe it's when you're doing that loving kindness meditation and you're doing the first one with yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to almost separate from yourself. Mm -hmm. and to see yourself as some sort of separate outside thing that you can give loving kindness to as opposed to. Yeah. Um, yeah, like there's sort of a way of distancing yourself from yourself. Where yeah. You see yourself from the outside. And Watcher, mm -hmm. as opposed to it's internal. Yeah. No, yeah. And that, I mean, creativity is, I think we undersell how much creativity and imagination plays a role in meditation. 
And I think just, yeah, for that time being to just think of like, um, cause there's not really, when you start to think of myself, like what even is that, you know, that as soon as you start thinking that you're creating a little bit of a gulf there, you know, and that's, and that's something that has a pragmatic usefulness in terms of like making, uh, becoming a giver and receiver of the love that you're generating, you know, that's why, that's why we need God. That's why, that's where the God idea like can be so helpful because there's, there's, you're creating something that can receive love and that can give love, but actually the source of it is your own heart. Cause that's the only, the love that you're experiencing is generated in yourself. So you have this idea of other through God or through your deity or through your puppy. That's a way of laundering your emotions. You know, because when you have that anthropomorphic counterpoint, you can you can engender that certain feeling. And so your body becomes this laboratory of creating this emotion that you're giving to other. But as soon as you give to other, you're experiencing it yourself. So as soon as you love God, you're experiencing the love that you're offering God. And then you experience that as coming from God, you know, and you're saved. Yeah. Uh, I have a question about um, what does like what does meeting yourself where you're at on the spiritual path look like to you? Mm-hmm. And um, kind of what is like readiness and sort of like knowing when you're ready for to get a step maybe more towards practicing in a more like thorough way or or with uh, lots of other people or at the monastery. How do you gauge, like, yeah, basically readiness and combining that with meeting yourself as you are where you are? Okay, great. So I don't know if Zoomers can hear, but the uh, but the question was, um, how do you um, how do you kind of how do you interpret the, the the kind of advice of meeting yourself where you're at in terms of how how you decide how involved you're going to get in practice and to what extent and what that needs to look like for you. Um, one, one bit is like, if you wait until you're ready, you've waited a little too long, (laughs) you know? Um, uh, so I think there's this kind of responding to this kind of like call, you know? Um, I have a student right now that's living in a residential center, um, against my best advice. (laughs) <laughs> you know? I'm like, I'm like, you don't need to do that for the very reasons that I mentioned at the top, this kind of like extractive, you know, uh, coercive kind of work paradigm, you know, um, they're bastions of somatic dominance and, um, but, uh, um, but he had to, you know, was, he had to be in his bonnet and he had to, and I had to be in on bonnet, my bonnet and I had to, and I spent 10 years there, you know, um, I think more the the details of how far you're going, the way you can check up on that for yourself is being like, is this a running to or a running from? You know, and do a little bit of inventory. How much of this is is a to and how much of this is a from? Um, There's this great movie with the lady from the Avengers, Diane Riggs, is that her name? And it was from the 70s. And in, uh, she was in this movie called In This House of Breed, where she becomes a nun. And she's having a whiskey with her ex-boyfriend 
uh, or right before she goes in the monastery. And he's like, what are you running away from everything for? And she's like, I'm going to something. You know, and I think that's an important distinction. But I think there's always going to be a little bit of a way, you know, a way is part of the idea. Um, but sometimes if there's too much away, then what's driving us is this like kind of not so informed idealization of what we're going to, you know, and then you find out by doing it, you know, what, what a monastery actually doesn't deliver, which is a lot. Um, but if you feel compelled to like do, you know, if it's a question of doing a day long or doing a multi-day thing, I think, you know, you can't go wrong by checking it out. And it's not like kind of like all or nothing. It's like, what kind of person am I becoming? You don't even have to think about it in terms of that. You know, it's like, I'm curious about this thing. I want to see what it's like. Um, and then in terms of, you know, the skillful, like kind of meeting yourself where you're at, I think sometimes we let the idealism of a tradition drown out the kind of like feedback that we're getting and how much things are working for us. You know, so if you encounter a teacher or a teachings that is trying to do this kind of like trying to make you fit the mold of what a Zen student is or what a yogi is or something like that. And, and this kind of like, you know, you shouldn't care whether it's hot or cold and you should be able to sit as long as you can or stuff like that. Then there's some stuff in there where um, uh, people can, through idealism, you know, stay really committed to a practice that is very ineffective for them, you know? So if your system's kind of flooded with cortisol, if you're like, if you're like, you know, a walking ball of stress, you know, before you think, think non-thinking and just sit, uh, let's address all of the stress in our system, you know? So I think there's a lot of people that are trying to do, you know, hardcore Soto Zen that probably could do, you know, take half or 70% of that time and do like restorative yoga and they'd be in a better spot, you know, um, because uh, we don't owe the Buddha our misery, you know, um, no one benefits from that. You don't, you don't win um, by uh, hammering yourself into shape, you know, so you got to actually, so part of the practice is actually, you know, taking note of what's going on inside and being like, what does my system need right now to begin to feel um, safe so that I can begin unraveling it a bit? You know, because like that thing that I was mentioning earlier, that story where I'm like, how many hands do I have? That comes from being tightly wound, you know? And, um, and if you're tightly wound um, and you, you know, it's just kind of like, like, uh, my understanding of psychedelics, it's like, if you're coming, if you're going to, so people would be like, oh, acid or mushrooms or whatever, they're really great. They'll give you this experience of blah, blah, blah. And it's like, actually, if you're coming into that experience loaded with fear, it's not going to save you. It's going to amplify it, you know? So sitting in stark nothingness, when your belief of stark nothingness is that it's a non-benevolent benevolent state, it's just gonna it's just gonna be agonizing so you need to become figure out how you're going to stabilize yourself in the grace of just being 
and start to take baby steps towards that instead of just being like, well, I'll just swim by diving into the, I'll learn, learn to swim by diving off a cliff. You know, I'm like, that ain't it. Yeah. Is that helpful? Very good. Yeah. What's enlightenment? And what are the, are there different levels of it? I think enlightenment is this European concept. Um, I think there are a lot of different ideas of what that is uh, going throughout. So when we're talking about it, we're talking about it in in a cultural, um, religious paradigm that that gestated in in South Asia about two thousand years ago. That was kind of the seeds of it. And then there's a lot of different descriptions about what that can look like, depending on the framework of the tradition that you're talking about. So all of these different kind of schools of thought arose in that time. So that theoretically, about 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, you had your first grain surplus in the Himalayan foothills in the Gangetic Plain. And a grain surplus means that the, the lifestyle kind of changes. And there you get increased urbanization, you get increased commerce, and you get um, people uh, the opportunity to really think about what life is like in a new way um, that you don't really have the flexibility to do when there isn't that um, increased kind of commerce based society. Yeah. Um, so there are a bunch of people that were um, started to see the direction that the world was going in and get kind of frustrated with it or disinterested in and being like, there, there's something else we, that this that life has to be. And this became what we call the Shramana tradition, which Shramana means striver. So these are all the people that we would now kind of call yogis. And so Buddhism is an early Shramana tradition, you know, and all the different what would unfold and become all the different yogic schools are Shramana traditions. Uh, the word ashram comes from that word Shramana, means a place of striving. You know, and so there's a bunch of ideas and it's like, well, your soul is free, but since your soul is tethered to your body, it has all of these limitations put on it so that there's, um, if you can transcend your body's needs, then your soul will be liberated from the needs of the corporal body or something like that. So there's a whole school of thought, like that's what liberation is, you know? And um, so Buddha had his own idea of what liberation is. And if you look at it, if you look at the early Buddhism idea of liberation is, I think it is something that most Buddhist, most contemporary Buddhists, especially contemporary Buddhists in Zen and Mahayana schools would not find appealing, would not be interested in. Because when you look at early Buddhism, there's all this stuff about, um, you see this language like, if you have this level of realization, you're a once returner. Or if you have this level of realization, you're a never returner. Or you're a stream enterer, which means there's no backsliding. And all these terms, once return or never return, means you're not going to be a human next birth. You know, or you're only going to be a human one more time. You know, because in the cosmology of it, you're, you're, as your consciousness is liberated, then it's not reborn in human form. You know, so really early Buddhism is like we're trying to escape human existence. You know, so for us today, we're kind of like, that, that's not what I'm trying to do. I think most of us, you know, so there's this discrepancy. And as and as different schools evolved and responded to that, and then, you know, you had tantric schools and, and then the Mahayana schools and uh, the early 
centuries of the common era being like, no, no, sam samsara and nirvana are one and the same. And we're not trying to be liberated from being reborn as humans, you know? So there's a different take. So when you look at the whole scope of the whole arc of what Buddhism had to say about itself, you're actually getting snapshots of very different approaches. So that's what can be really, really confusing about it. Is it like, am I trying to not be reborn in this world? Or am I trying to every day is a good day, ordinary mind is the way, you know, kind of thing. So in, yeah. in our practice, I think, I'm, it seems like it depends on which period of time you're looking at different mm -hmm. definitions, but like we're taught in Soto Zen, Samsara and, and Nirvana are the same. It, mm -hmm. It's just like the here and now is Nirvana. Yeah. And some of the time we're taught that. And then when we're reading, but you can come to a Zen center and then we, we could have a whole class where we're looking at Nikaya source material, early, early source material, and it's just kind of not presenting that view, you know? So I think, and I think Zen is a school that kind of gestated, gestated in a period of transition. So I think it has a little bit of identity crisis about what it's trying to do in terms of being either transcend, transcendental or like this very life is it, you know? So you see, you get mixed messages, I think, in our school. You know, and people are emphasizing different things. And then, you know, you have things like in Tibetan Buddhism where you have monastics doing Tantra. And the monastic worldview and the Tantric worldview actually kind of don't really blend so well. You know, because one's about um, refining your um, ethics, you know, and one's about rethinking ethics, you know, or something like that. So there's a lot of kind of cross-contamination there. But I think, in so you have terms like, um, you know, jiva mukta, which means the soul liberated. You have nirvana, you have, which means like um, extinction. You know, nirvana means extinction or cooled off, you know? So I think um, there's too many ideas out there <laughs> for you to like say that like, this is what enlightenment is. And I think the easier, point to start with is like, what am I trying to get out of this? You know, what's my agenda here? Because now it's been, we've, we can, we have a bird's eye view of the past 2000 plus years of yogic traditions and their ideas of what enlightenment is. And then we have the, you know, your own cultural predisposition and then the influence of Christianity on you or Abrahamic religions on you. And your agenda might be very different from a medieval Japanese agenda or a 2,000-year-old South Asian agenda. You might want, you might be wanting something very different than those folks wanted, and that's okay. And what tools from this tradition move you towards the thing that you're interested in? You know, um, because the experience that you have is informed by what you're bringing into it. You know, so I think of um, we're reimagining how we're experiencing the world that way. You know, we can't undersell the role that imagination plays in this practice. And um, I think about, because uh, sometimes we think we want it to be stark, like em empty of the imagined. You know, but what, what's left when we're empty of the imagined is our predisposition that we don't even realize is a predisposition. So there's this scene in the movie Hook. Has everybody seen Hook? with uh, um, Professor McGonagall and um, uh, Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman. Um, it's funny, they made, 
they did old makeup on the lady that plays Professor McGonagall, and she looks exactly like she does now. But um, <laughs> uh, it's from the early '90s. But it's, Peter Pan gets old, you know, and he goes and he forgets about Neverland. And there's a scene where he's back. Uh, oh, and Dante Bosco's in it, the voice of Prince Zuko. Um, and uh, and he he's back with the Lost Boys in Neverland, and they sit down to dinner. And there's no food because it's Neverland, and you actually have to imagine the food into existence. And only once you imagine the food into existence, you get to eat it. You know. And I think the when Dogen says Zazen is the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, it's like we're Peter Pan and we're back at Neverland and we're sitting down at the empty table. You know. And I could either take my ordinary mind into this and see the empty table. Or I can imagine the food into existence, you know, and that's what like this meta practice is. That's what you know. It's just like I am imagining a warm feeling at the pit of my stomach that is like you know moving golden light throughout my system. This is a lot of the tantric practices are about imagining a new way of relating to your life, you know. And I think we gotta. I think it could be helpful in our practice to avail ourselves of the power of this reimagining our felt experience of this moment. Because what you're carrying into it is not something that's more accurate. That's got its own causes and conditions that left you where you are. You know, so this mind is capable of so much. And what's what am I what am I interested in moving towards here? And as we, you know, you're at my retreat, you you can um, when you bring in mantra, when you bring in visualization, when you bring in guided scripts, when you bring in relaxation, all of these can really, really influence the way life feels to you, you know? And I think just getting curious about that and just continuing to work that edge, you know, and, and explore all the different facets of that. Um, but... If you want the orthodox answer, <laughs> you've had a direct yogic perception of, of that things do not have an inherent existence from their own side, and that causes you to see things in their relationships accurately so that you do not relate to them with uh, from a point of misunderstanding, and you do not compound your karma of wrong understanding, and you do not bring... Um, disruption, not, not, not disruption but uh, you do not bring anything negative into the world anymore. Yeah. And you experience nothing negative anymore. Yeah. Which is like, maybe, I don't know. I'm just gonna try to feel better. <laughs> I'm just gonna try to, I'm just gonna try to feel like the world's not out to get me a little bit more every day. Yeah. yeah. Okay, what is separateness? In, in Buddhism, and how might you see it um, manifesting in our world currently? Yeah. Separateness is a, um, a uh, pragmatic necessity for survival, I think. You know, like our very presence here today is um, um, a testament that we are um, the latest in a line of people that avoided being eaten. 
you know. <laughs> um, or people that um, struck first, or people that ran ran away really well, you know. So fight and flight, the reptilian part of our brain, that very, very fast old part of our brain that is not interested in imagination, you know, not really interested in connection, benefits from connection, benefits from symbiotic relationships, but not, but not cognizing it so much. You know, we're just kind of like food, danger, you know, that part is very rapid and very well developed, you know, and if uh, um, the, the, the sentient beings historically that were walking around during a time where there was a lot of predators around and they were looking at the lilacs, they're gone. Their bloodline's gone, <laughs> you know? So we're the descendants of the people that did not look at the lilacs, you know? We're the descendants of the people that pounced or ran, you know? Um, so we are up against that being really, really ingrained into our minds. Um, and, um, and then with, uh, capitalism and industrialization, then there's even that, that, that myth of the individual has grown and grown and grown. So you have the predisposition of seeing yourself as an individual that is just a survival necessity, but then there's that seeing myself as an individual that is not in community and that does not benefit from community. And that's a, that's the big Western lie. You know, um, um, and um, it's just something that is uh, kind of the air that we breathe, and we have to be kind of critical of it and thoughtful about it, like all the friggin' time. Yeah. So, what Buddhism had to say about it is actually a little bit different than what we have to say about it you know, in late stage capitalism, post-industrial revolution. Like our sense of capitalism is very, or our sense of, <laughs> of uh, separation is, is different than what Buddha would have been talking about 2,500 years ago. That was just like, kind of like the, the tendency towards self-interest. But we're, 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 I think we're beyond that to the um, inarguable valorization of the fact of the individual, you know. Oh, we're done? Oh, yeah, like precisely done. I hope that was worth your time. Was that as interesting as just giving a talk? Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks so much. Thank you, Coach.